What's nice in some ways about what's happening with psychedelics and the renaissance we're experiencing right now is that's not coming from an advocacy level. It's not coming from a grassroots level. It's not the hippies out there, you know, trying to free the weed. It is science. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. What do we do on the podcast? Uh, We talk to wellness experts. What do we talk about? wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Hey guys, hope everyone's doing well. We are really, really, really excited to share this conversation that we had with Ronan Levy, who is the co-founder and executive chairman of Field Trip Health. They are basically on the cutting edge of developing some psychedelic therapy techniques and methodologies um, based in Canada, but uh, with satellite offices all over the US and North America. And Ronan is a super nice guy, really fascinating story. He has built, he likes to say he's built a career out of doing things that others say cannot be done, starting in cannabis and moved into psychedelics. Obviously, it's an adjacent space to what we're doing with functional mushrooms, but we are just so excited that the conversation around uh, plant medicine in general is gaining so much traction and we can't wait to share this episode with you. Have a listen and uh, thanks again. Hey guys. So you may have figured out by now that Zoe and I are huge fans of functional mushrooms. And that's because their benefits are legit from increasing focus and concentration to helping you sleep. And probably most importantly, providing incredible support for your immune system. And yes, that is actual science. You can check it out on our blog at earthandstar.com. But who doesn't need a little bit of extra immune support right now if we're being honest? But anyway, the most important thing for you to know, actually, is that you have to have these fabulous fungi in your system every day in order to reap the benefits. So Earth and Star, our new brand, is making it as easy as possible for you to get the amazing benefits of functional mushrooms every day. Like if you've got a serious cold brew habit, there's a can for that. If you love your afternoon matcha latte, then we've got you covered there. And if you're not like G-Love and you're not feeling the cold beverages, then how about a totally delicious dark chocolate bar that also helps you increase focus and concentration while satisfying your sweet tooth? And it pairs super well with red wine. So we at Earth and Star have created as many ways as possible to help you elevate your everyday routine because we are not asking you to add another pill or a powder to your very busy schedule of supplements We just want it to be as easy and absolutely delicious as possible for you to get some mush love into your life. So check us out at earthandstar.com and get 15% off your first order with the code HTW. Ronan Levy, thank you so much for joining us. It's Um, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Oh, me too. Speak for Zoe as well. We are... Obviously, we are in the mushroom game, which is not the same as the psychedelic mushroom game, which is also not the same as the full psychedelics game that you're in. But, you know, all sorts of fun press around the shroom boom and it's kind of associated tentacles and and uh, 
or mycelium, I suppose, to use a, a nerdier term. So <laughs> yeah. um, very excited to hear about your story and the work that you are doing with Field Trip. So can you just start with how you ended up where you are and, and what you're doing? And, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So I started off as a practicing lawyer, actually. Um, and I took a big dose of psychedelics and realized that was crazy. No, that's not actually what happened. It took many years of um, working as a lawyer uh, to kind of get out of the industry. I knew very quickly coming out of law school and starting the practice of law that that's not where my ambitions ambitions were. And so was constantly striving to get out of the practice of law. And eventually, through many efforts, went into the music industry and the practice of law and then to the digital media industry. And I started working with tech startups um, as a lawyer. And through that, I ended up meeting the co-founders in our last business together, which was Canadian Cannabis Clinics. Um, and Canadian Cannabis Clinics grew to become the largest network of cannabis specialized medical clinics in Canada. We ultimately sold that to a company called Aurora Cannabis, which is one of the largest global producers of cannabis. And then helped Aurora grow. Actually, at the time, they were small and they became quite large, uh, which is pretty good for a whole bunch of guys who had almost no experience with cannabis whatsoever. Um, And to be quite honest, I think that was in many ways one of the things that differentiated us getting into the cannabis industry is that we came in kind of green, very open-minded, pretty sophisticated business operators, pretty savvy, uh, and can bring a unique lens on how to professionalize and bring credibility to something that was still pretty much on the fringes of medicine at the time. But what happened is even though we got into the cannabis industry pretty agnostic about the therapeutic potential of cannabis, pretty open-minded, after spending four or five years in the cannabis industry, we were very, very much convinced about the therapeutic potential of cannabis overall. And that really opened our mind to plant-based medicine more broadly. And so after we left Aurora following the acquisition, we, we were looking for the next great opportunity. And that's when we learned about what was happening with psychedelics. Uh, we had one chance meeting uh, where someone mentioned that a single psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy session is like 10 years of therapy in an afternoon. And she pointed to all of these things that were starting to happen in the psychedelics industry, like MAPS, um, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, having been granted breakthrough therapy status for their phase two trial with MDMA. Michael Pollan had just published How to Change Your Mind, which I think is going to be you know, a seminal work uh, looking back from the future uh, in terms of where society started to change. Uh, I had remembered Peter Thiel had just invested in something about psilocybin, but I didn't know what. And then interestingly, all of these, at the time, there was only about three or four stores in Canada started opening up, openly selling psilocybin producing mushrooms online, not dark web, not underground, just straight up uh, selling mushrooms, which is still very illegal in Canada. (laughs) But in, in the... Very Canadian way. I think only one has been shut down and it got shot down, not through, you know, some guns blazing police raid or anything along those lines. Rather, they got a letter from Health Canada saying, you're selling an unauthorized medicine. Would you please stop? And also in a very Canadian way, they did. Um, So all of that was happening uh, around the same time. And What got me really excited was actually the idea that psychedelics could be a springboard for 
mass mental health as Rick Doblin describes it. You know, I've done a lot of personal work with coaching and, and therapy and meditation and metaphysics. And I know how much it's done for my personal life. And I know for a lot of people, that's just way too mumbo jumbo. They don't want to do it. They don't think anything's wrong. But what really intrigued me about psychedelics is I could see that there'd be a large audience of people who would say, I'm not interested in therapy, but psychedelics can kind of, kind of cool. I'll do that. And that would be the springboard on that kind of virtual journey to towards personal growth and emotional awareness. Uh, and that's what really struck me. So spent a lot of time thinking about psychedelics for the next six months. This was back in 2018. Uh, and out of that thinking, Field Trip was born. And so that what that's what brought me to here and now. Wow. And so what is Field Trip exactly? What is the practice and what happens there? And just for people who are not familiar, because I imagine most of our listeners are not yet familiar. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of things at Field Trip. So I'll try to be brief in, in summarizing it. But at Field Trip, we're focused on the end-to-end development and delivery of psychedelic therapies. One that's one thing that's really unique about psychedelic therapies is that it's a form of experiential medicine where the experience matters as much as the actual drug uh, being administered or the therapy being administered, the set and setting matters. And so as we were looking at it, we realized that if you wanted to develop new drugs or new products without focusing also on the settings for where this could take place, you're missing an essential component of the overall therapeutic experience. And so we have two divisions. We have Field Trip Health, which is building out clinical infrastructure to deliver psychedelic-assisted therapies using ketamine primarily right now as a psychedelic. Uh, we're operating in Toronto, New York, LA, Chicago, Atlanta, and Houston. Houston, uh, And then we're under construction in San Diego, San Carlos, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Seattle, Washington, and Fred- Fredericton, New Brunswick, uh, and continuing to grow. And, and these centers are designed to be safe, bright, warm, inviting places to experience psychedelic therapies focused mostly on treating depression and anxiety, but as well as PTSD and and other mental health uh, challenges. On the other side, we have Field Trip Discovery, which is focused on developing the next generation of psychedelic therapies. So as amazing and as cool as psilocybin and MDMA are, uh, when it comes to being medicines, even though they're safe and effective, it doesn't mean that we can't do better. Um, And one of the biggest challenges is because a psychedelic experience on psilocybin or MDMA is so long, you know, you're looking at four, six, eight, ten hours, it becomes clinically difficult and expensive to administer. So if you can focus on trying to shorten some of those timeframes uh, without affecting the therapeutic outcomes, you can really make this a much more accessible treatment. And I'm a big believer that psychedelics are going to fundamentally change how we think about psychiatry and, and mental health. And, and I think in many ways, change the course of society and culture in a very good way because they're so potent in helping people deal with their shit. Excuse my language. I hope that's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, I think the impact is going to be massive. Um, so very excited about that. And, and by developing a next generation of psychedelic molecules that are just more accessible because they're more cost efficient, uh, I think will really accelerate the adoption and, and buy-in of psychedelic therapies to treat all of these conditions. So that's, that's what we're doing at Field Trip. Uh, so it's basically you're building out like the doctor's office that I've always wanted to walk into. Like it's the opposite of this cold clinical setting. It's like very warm or inviting. I mean, your your website's beautiful and it actually does look like a place that I want to go. Um, mm. In fact, I did make an appointment and I will be having my first phone call um, this Friday. You did? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Nice. Um, but I just wanted to back up so we can get a little bit more like 101 with, with the subject. And 
Can you break down sort of how you think about these three buckets right now, like ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin? Um, what are like the main differences? And I know right now, at least in the US, the only one available is ketamine, right? That's correct. Yeah. So on a high level, uh, the differences between ketamine and psilocybin and MDMA are actually pretty marginal. If you think about psychedelic-assisted therapy exactly as it's described, uh, which is it's using a psychedelic to really catalyze or supercharge therapy. Um, so the different psychedelics just do that in different ways. They're not materially different. It's it's not like. Uh, one medicine is completely antithetical to the other or anything along those lines. They all just open people up to a different level of awareness. And, and before I go into more detail, um, I'll just kind of explain that with all psychedelic therapies, the understanding or the belief right now is the way they work is that they do three things uh, pretty much in tandem. One is uh, they call their their rapid acting antidepressants. So within half an hour or so of taking a psychedelic, you have a massive serotonin rush. You feel better. You have a mood lift within a very short window. Compare that to conventional antidepressants, which take weeks or months to get there. It's very fast. Secondly. Because it's done in the context of therapy, what happens when you come into our clinic is that you get noise-canceling headphones, you get eye shades, you're, you lie down in an extremely comfortable zero-gravity chair, uh, and you're invited to go inward. And during that experience, regardless of the psychedelic that's used, people are often report... Uh, just seeing the world from a different perspective. Often they're able to go back and revisit past traumas or past experiences that may be underlying their depression or their anxiety or PTSD, or maybe they just see the world in an entirely different way, but it gives them a unique perspective, which opens them up to being uh, pretty candid in therapy. Because with conventional therapy, which does by and large work, it just takes a really long time to get past the ego, to get past those defenses in the mind, to actually get to the, the real crux of the issue. With psychedelics, it's kind of like a, a high-speed train right to opening up to that potential issue. So you get this therapeutic, cathartic ther you know, uh, process that gets people into therapy. And then the third thing is that what we've seen with most psychedelics so far is that there's actually a period of neuroplasticity that follows a psychedelic experience, which means, you know, as, as people know that kids are much more adept at developing new skills or new languages, as we age, we have more rigid rigid mental models, which means we're not as good at developing new skills. It just doesn't come as naturally to us because we have these fixed models. Uh, so following a psychedelic experience, that those fixed models become softer, you know, and becomes easier to adopt new habits, new perspective, new outlooks, new thought patterns, which actually affects the, the neurochemistry in the brain. Uh, and so pairing the whole experience with cognitive behavioral therapy, people are not only able to do the emotional processing, they're actually able to change their lifestyle to support a healthier outlook following the psychedelic experience. So it's those three things that are happening during a psychedelic experience. So it doesn't really matter if it's MDMA or ketamine or psilocybin, that's going to happen in each scenario. Now, the difference between the three that exist right now is that, uh, first of all, ketamine is legal and available. Uh, the experience tends to be a bit shorter. It's about an hour to an hour and a half in the doses that are administered uh, in a psychedelic context. People tend to report it more like an out-of-body out experience. Um, but again, it's the same thing, that they're just able to see 
see things from a different perspective. Some people are able to find the profound in the mundane. Some people go back and realize that they have big issues with their mother or their father. Um, that's the kind of common experience of just being seeing things from a different perspective. Uh, the evidence right now is, is for ketamine and depression. Uh, but more and more, we're seeing it across a number of different indications. Psilocybin, uh, very similar in terms of the experience to ketamine, just a little bit more colorful, a little bit more flowery, a little bit more what you imagine the 1960s to 60s kind of to be like very colorful, very bright, tends to be a very positive, warm, loving, emotional experience, uh, but also very psychedelic. You know, people often see things from different perspectives. It creates an experience of synesthesia. Uh, so, parts of the brain that process music and parts that process color are now talking to each other. And that's what opens people up. Uh, but it's a very intense and can be very visceral experience. MDMA, uh, the focus of the research on MDMA has been primarily on treating PTSD. Uh, and MDMA is also known as an empathogen, which it means it opens up people to feeling love more. So whereas psilocybin can be a more cerebral, not exclusively cerebral experience. That's like you have all these crazy ideas and see all these wonderful things. With MDMA, you feel a lot more. You feel a lot more love. You can have a lot more compassion, particularly towards yourself, which can start the healing process. Um, so those are where the different kind of buckets lie. Most of it is in depression, MDMA specific to PTSD. But the truth of the matter is, I think you'll find that all psychedelics may have relevance for all mental health applications. They just kind of take a different slice of the pie in terms of what the emotional healing process looks like. Did that answer your question? I know I said a lot yeah, there, no, but you're, uh, so, you're so um, clear with your so messages. So it's such a, it's like so refreshing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> right itself. So I want to go um, back to something that you said about um, ego, because I think that, so I, I read, I listened actually to, to Michael Pollan's book, which was just like the most incredible 19 hours that I <laughs> um, and there were a couple of of um, analogies that he gave that actually really crystallized things for me, much in the same way that you just did. So, in terms of like the neuroplasticity, he describes it as um, imagine that you are skiing down a slope and you go down the same path every time because the more you take that path, the easier it is, right? Because the snow has plowed away and you just see your tracks, and then one day you just decide to take a different track. And I was like, okay, that totally makes sense. These thought patterns that are so ingrained in us, all of a sudden we have the opportunity to see like, oh, I don't need to go down this path again, which I thought was actually just a really beautiful and clear way of describing what this process is. But he spends a lot of time talking about this whole notion of the ego, right? Which is like the ego just dissolves and it goes away. And I think that that is actually somewhat of a difficult concept for someone to understand if they haven't either had a psychedelic experience or even if they haven't had a therapy experience. Because I mean, obviously most of us know from like a clinical point of view, the notion of ego goes back to, you know, kind of psych 101. So can you talk a little bit more about what that actually, what that means and how, what that sort of parallel is? Because I think that that, you know, he kind of says that's really the crux of what this whole thing is about, right? It's kind of losing a little bit of yourself and understanding more like a sense of oneness. Um, but how do those two camps kind of reconcile this one notion of ego? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a fairly uh, long and complicated conversation and I'm not sure I'm necessarily the best equipped. But the way I think about the ego is 
it really is the part of us that gives us a definition of self. self. It helps us understand who we are um, as a person, what our values are, uh, what distinguishes me from you uh, or other people. Uh, and it becomes rigid. And, and in terms of conventional therapy, what people try to do is speak to the ego and try to understand it and slowly work past it and change its own perspective of itself. And we can go into some of the thoughts about why we have an ego in the first place. Some of them go back to even like the physical infrastructure of our head. But because it defines a sense of self and, and it, it's, it really exists to preserve that ourselves, you know, it acts as a defense mechanism. What it does is it stops people from changing. It is the part of us that becomes resistant to change because it doesn't want to let go of who we are. What psychedelics do, uh, and it's thought through the work we've seen in, in psychedelics, is that the ego resides in what we call the default mode network of the brain. Because people report experiencing ego dissolution. They ha stop having a sense of self during intense psychedelic experiences uh, and just kind of connect and, and realize they're connected to everything that's going on on the planet or the universe or however you want to describe it. So we know people report ego dissolution. Uh, and what we've seen in F fMRI machines, because in some of the studies, they've taken people having a psychedelic experience and put them in, in a brain imaging machine that there's a certain part of the brain that starts to quiet. Uh, it's called the default mode network. Um, and it's kind of like the operating system for, for humanity. It's that part of the brain that when you're not thinking is operating. It's the part of the brain that's keeping your heart beating, even though you don't think about your heart beating or your stomach digesting or whatever you, however you want to uh, think about it. And um, what we've seen is that when people take a psychedelic experience, that part of the brain quiets down. It stops being as active as it was. So the ego is literally just not conceptually or psychologically, but actually in the brain quieting down. And when that defense mechanism quiets down, then people are more easy to perceive new ideas, receive things from a different perspective. And so that's what we think is happening. And we also know, um, as you gave the illusion of the, the skiing, that the more people have the same thoughts, the more actually the brain patterns get rigid. Uh, and so in Michael Pollan's example as well, it's kind of like dumping a fresh load of snow on top of those, those ski tracks. You know, All of a sudden, you have the ability to create new paths. And that's exactly what it is when you kind of quiet the ego. It slows down, it quiets down. People open up and all of a sudden can, you know, through and what we do in our clinics is more uh, conventional cognitive behavioral techniques like motivational interviewing and behavioral activation enables people to actually make those changes. So when the literally when the cat's away, so to speak, the mice will play. And that's exactly what uh, what happens during a psychedelic or following a psychedelic experience. Did that answer your question? I wasn't sure if I Completely, hit the question. Yes. Again, okay. very clear. Yeah, Perfect. yeah, super clear. What is the actual, so what are the steps? Like, can you walk through, you know, so I'm just thinking about my own journey that I'm excited to go on. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and I've taken mushrooms a bunch um, in my life. I've taken MDMA, <laughs> I've taken, but you know, I've never had, well, I've had a bunch of different experiences, but what do you do after you have like the quote unquote trip, right? So you spend an hour or however long in the chair with the headphones and the thing, and you have a guide. And how does that integrate post trip? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's unique to every single person going through it. There's no fixed mechanism to do it. We have a standard process that we tend to follow, but at the end of the day, our therapy team has a lot of discretion on how they choose to work with patients in a way where they apply their expertise uh, to each situation. But 
What happens when you come through a field trip ketamine uh, journey is that, A, we screen you quite carefully because we, we don't want to be treating people where there's a risk that something could go sideways, both physically or psychologically. Uh, so that doesn't mean it's a necessarily a high bar, but there's some people that psychedelic therapies probably aren't appropriate for. Assuming that everything looks good, you'd meet with your therapy team, you'd have your first ketamine exploratory session. And we call it that because you have the ketamine experience for call it an hour to an hour and a half. And then immediately following, there's an opportunity to what I call debrief with your therapist. So it's not designed to be terribly probing uh, or you know going super deep. It's mostly just an opportunity for you to share the experience and start to document what came up. So it gives the the therapist um, you know the benefit of what it usually take you years to kind of get to uh, in in conventional therapy, and they just record that mostly. And you do that twice. Ideally, at least with ketamine, I'm talking specifically about right now, you do that twice over the course of a couple of days. And then two or three days later, we have a pure integration experience or a pure integration session that involves no drugs at this point. Really, it's just about taking all of those insights, all of those awarenesses, all of those things that would come up in conventional therapy and trying to turn them into some sort of cog- conscious cognitive action plan. So, you know, if you're feeling depressed, it may go deep into, you know, what the causes are, what what you experienced as as maybe as a child or or more recently that kind of put you into depression and what other things have come up that a therapist may obviously just be attuned to by virtue of being a therapist about how you act and your behaviors and your mindset and all that kind of stuff. Or it can be much more in the context of like motivational interviewing, asking people questions. So if depression is is happening, if you're in a depressed state, but you're choosing poor decisions from a lifestyle perspective, not eating well, not exercising, not talking to friends, actually taking concrete steps to actually start to make lifestyle changes that will actually support a a healthier outlook or a healthier perspective. And over the course of a full treatment program, which typically involves four or six uh, uh, ketamine exploratory sessions, you do that two or three times that block of treatment. What happens in each individual one, like I said, that's just a guide. It really is specific to your experience and what you need and what comes up, but that's generally can gives you a sense of what will happen. And what happens when you have, I mean, when you're, when you're dealing with psilocybin, you know, I think a large part of this for many people is there's the fear associated, obviously, with having a bad trip. How do you approach that? I mean, it, it's, it's all, it always seems like a little bit of a gamble, even just personally, like recreationally taking, you know, drug. I mean, I find mushrooms to be quite reliable and consistent, um, yeah. but you know, it really, it depends. I mean, where you are, the trip, you know, one trip to the next could be quite different depending on like just your general state of mind, what happened yesterday. So how do you, um, you know, how do you talk to folks about anxiety around having like a bad experience? Because you go to some dark places. Yeah, you certainly can go to some dark places, but the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of what we were taught in high school was either an over a, a gross exaggeration or an outright lie in terms of the risks around psychedelic therapies. Yes, there are certain risks. That's true about any medicine you take. But what seems to be the understanding right now is that there's no such thing as a bad trip per se. You know, you heard all those things. Don't do the brown acid. You'll take it. You'll have a bad trip. 
current belief is that there's no such thing as a bad trip per se. There's hard trips and there are easy trips. Easy trips, you know, probably don't warrant any more explanation. Hard trips, however, can be extremely therapeutic, can actually be even more therapeutic than an easy trip because it's forcing you to confront those things that are buried deep down in your psyche or in your subconscious that may be triggering or driving your depression or your anxiety. When done in a safe container with a properly trained therapist or doctor or guide, hard trips tend to be the most beneficial. People come out the other side having the most positive experience possible. When done outside of that context, without the support of someone who knows what they're doing, that's when a bad, a hard trip can become a bad trip and create its own instance of trauma. But what we've generally seen um, you know, within our clinics, within all the experience that uh, our various therapists and doctors have, is that with the right container, the risks of having a bad trip uh, are, are very unlikely. So there's not a whole lot of concern uh, associated with it. And people should put their mind at ease that they're dealing with professionals who know how to manage even challenging situations. But also, it's it's also important to recognize that that anxiety is legitimate, right? Of course, there's fear associated with. It. I have anxiety before I go into any therapy session. I just feel a sense of dread. I don't want to do it, you know. In part, that's a rational response. That is your ego, quite literally, acting up, saying like, "Ah, you're fine. You don't need to change. Don't worry about it." Recognize and try to understand what part of your brain is just doing that, just making you resistant because it doesn't want to change. And then also try to understand what part of you is legitimately and actually afraid uh, that something could go sideways. And the only way really, I think, to deal with that is to feel it, understand it, and then look at the evidence and, and satisfy yourself that this is safe. Look at the team that you're working with to satisfy yourself that they know what they're doing and that the risks uh, are extremely low. Um, and I think that's the best way for people who may have anxiety to go through it. And also look at the studies. I mean, there was a, a seminal study by Professor David Knott out of the Imper out of Imperial College in the UK, uh, looking at the relative harm profile of drugs. Um, and he looked at both licit and illicit substances. And the four or five lowest harm drugs were psilocybin, which was the lowest harm, LSD, MDMA, ketamine were all, I think, in the bottom 10 in terms of harm profile, even below cannabis by and large. And most people, I think, view cannabis as being rel relatively safe. And even though most people accept that alcohol is bad for you, they also think that alcohol is relatively safe. But when you see it on an objective spectrum, that alcohol is actually amongst the most dangerous drugs out there, uh, and these other ones are significantly less, if you get concerned about using psychoactivity uh, for any reasons, remember that alcohol and cannabis are, are also very psychoactive substances just in a different way. Uh, and I think most people get to a place of being comfortable enough to proceed. Yeah, I mean, we've just been fed such an enormous pack of lies when it comes to like the risks associated with alcohol and, you know, compared to those of, you know, why like drugs that are illegal and the reasons why they're illegal go back to like, you know, other topics we don't really need to get into. But I'm learning all of this only kind of recently that it's it's really crazy, like the fact that alcohol is legal and yet it's probably one of the most dangerous drugs that we could take. And granted, I'm not saying I don't enjoy it, but there there's just so much more to be discovered in this whole other realm. Um, but I think to your point, like there's such a difference between the therapeutic setting and somebody just deciding to, you know, kind of do a little trip on their own in the woods or with friends or whatever. Do you find that 
are you seeing instances of people who, because from what I understand, the idea here is like, you're not necessarily retaining patients for life, right? The whole idea is really to have a finite set of treatments so that somebody can then kind of go off and not have to be dependent on this in an ongoing way. Um, are you seeing instances of people who are having the treatment and then moving on and just like using these things recreationally after the fact? And is there, are, are they seeing a difference in their experience? And I'm just curious to see. It, it's a good question. And you're, you're right, uh, because we did initially conceive of um, our treatment programs as being a way station on the journey to mental health. Uh, they come in, you stop, maybe come once for a program or twice, and then you depart. What we're seeing, though, is that people actually want to stick around. And it's actually kind of logical that people don't you know, have a, a ketamine session every week. They go through a treatment program. And then, you know, if they find they're slipping into old patterns or their mood is is continuing to slip uh, a couple months down the road, they'll come in for a single kind of ongoing session. And, and I think that that's perfectly healthy and how it should be. The truth is, is personal growth is a lifelong effort. You know, emotional awareness, healing, it's a lifelong effort. It doesn't stop. It's it's there's no destination. I mean, that's one of the things that as modern Western humans, we think everything has a destination. There's an endpoint that if we just achieve it, then everything will be good. And that's just not actually how life works. Uh, and that's true about you know your, men- your mental and emotional states, that it's just an ongoing process. And even if you're feeling great, it doesn't mean that you can't go further and be better and still do more work. And so what we are seeing is that people are choosing to come back. They create great rapport with their therapists. They find the experience to be great and they want to continue the work. You know, They put them on the right trajectory. People want to continue on that trajectory to feeling better. Um, I can't report if people have decided to go off and start using psilocybin or MDMA or do other still illegal drugs following their treatment with us, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, and we kind of anticipated that. So in addition to our clinics, we've actually uh, built a, a digital tool called TRIP, which is designed for people who may be doing any form of self-guided guided consciousness expansion. So you know, when we talk about self-guided consciousness expansion, that could be meditation, that could be breath work, that could be psilocybin, that could be anything. But we took a lot of the, the frameworks that we use in the clinic uh, and really tried to distill it, in a, distill it in a way that someone could follow on their own. So when you launch TRIP, you know, it asks you to take a few breaths to ground yourself. It helps you set an intention. It helps you pick music to support the experience. And then afterwards, it starts you. It starts by asking you a series of, series of very um, structured questions to start the integration process. What came up? What did you see? What did you feel? You know, where do you think that came from? And and so even though you don't have the support of a therapist or a guide with you, you have the structure of that so people can kind of guide themselves along the way uh, if they choose to do it. Um, but again, I can't say empirically whether people are doing it. I wouldn't be surprised because you know what we know from at least the underground evidence as well as the academic evidence is that people find psychedelic experiences to be very profound and very meaningful. You know, one study looking at psilocybin for smoking addiction uh, found something like 75% of people reported a significant improvement in their consumption of tobacco, but 80% of them reported that their psilocybin experience was one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives up there with the birth of a child or or a wedding. Um, So even though psychedelics aren't addictive, uh, contrary to what we may have been taught in high school, they are self-perpetuating because people feel good and and they want to continue down the path that they started following a psychedelic-assisted therapy experience. Mm. 
speaking of um, a birth experience. So I, I'm just thinking about, you know, the fact that this is so beneficial for maybe groups of people who have contraindications, you know, thinking about the fact that, you know, there's a really high percentage of women postpartum who are usually breastfeeding um, that are going through like tremendous uh, anxiety and depression, but a contraindication would be breastfeeding. Right. So, and uh, you know, I'm thinking about sort of even, you know, maybe end of life therapy, if there are people who are chronically ill and they're on meds to treat whatever condition they have, but maybe there's a contraindication in that too. I mean, how do you, is there a way to, 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 to speak to those camps or those groups that, I don't know, is there a way around it? Because it just seems like it would be so helpful. That's a good question. I don't, I don't have a great answer. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to the medicine aspect of it, the decision that's made by our medical team is the risk-benefit analysis, right? Which is if someone's not acutely suicidal or not acutely at risk of harming themselves or harming others, then you have to weigh in all the other factors. And so for a breastfeeding mother, the the risk is greater because there's a, a risk to the child. Now, of course, there's a risk to the child from a, a mother who's not in a healthy state of mind for sure. But when it comes to interventional medicine, the calculation gets changed. And that's why uh, women who are breastfeeding are probably not well-suited for ketamine-assisted therapy, at least um, based on the evidence right now. But I, I imagine, and I've seen postpartum depression come up in a number of potential studies. So, you know, it may change. It's not that it's necessarily a contraindication. It's just when you're dealing with unknown risks, you tend not to make those in a situation where the risk extends further than just the individual being treated. And same with end-of-life distress, which is it's with ketamine, it's nice because you actually don't have to go off your SSRIs or conventional antidepressants if you're using them to have a ketamine-assisted experience. With psilocybin, it's highly recommended. But if you're at end of life, you know, and and weeks or months away um, from passing, then again, the risk-benefit analysis changes, which is if it expedites, if something could go wrong, and generally it's very unlikely that it does, but if something could go wrong, you're not dealing with a significant risk. It's really just a, a shortening of what was already a short time frame. But most of that is all based in just a lack of understanding right now. You know, there hasn't been a lot of research until the last 10 or so years, and now it's only starting to amp up. And as we get more understanding and more knowledge, then we can get more precise in understanding where the risks are and where the benefits are. And my guess is that you'll find that more and more skews to the benefits far outweigh the risks, but uh, I'm just speculating on that and maybe just a little bit hopeful too. I wonder if, I mean, because that's a really good example, Zoe, of like that group, that particular group, the mothers who, I mean, they need help more than so many people and they're obviously so averse to anything, you know, chemical kind of interfering, like you're saying. But I wonder in that case, is something like holotropic breathing an opportunity for them to maybe, because that's supposed to be akin to having a psychedelic experience without ingesting drugs, right? I'm curious if that's ever been studied with any breastfeeding women or women who are experiencing depression. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, I would have to look into it, but I, I think it's probably a good option, right? You're just modulating the oxygen content in your body uh, and, and the effects of it, you know, a typical breathwork session, call it half an hour, the effects of it are gone. You know, you kind of back into a steady state, probably feeling a lot better uh, within ten or fifteen minutes of a breathwork session. So it's um, uh, it's probably a safe option, but I'm I don't want to speak out of turn because yeah. I don't actually know. 
How long does ketamine stay in your system? The experience is over within an hour to an hour and a half. I don't know exactly what the washout period is, but my guess is it's probably pretty close that most of the ketamine will probably have left your system within a couple of hours. But Mm -hmm. um, I'm just guessing based on what I've seen on other studies uh, with psychedelics. I don't know specifically with ketamine. Right. When do you think, like, what is it going to take? When are we going to get, at least in the US, I mean, when does this become legal? Like, what, how, how, how far do we have before there's, there's more access? It's remarkably close. Uh, I think, depending on how you think about it, I think if you had asked me three years ago whether psychedelics would be legal in at least one state in the US by 2023, I'd say there's no effing way. Yet here we are uh, in 2021, and Oregon is creating the first legal market for psilocybin services uh, under a state program. What we're looking at beyond that, uh, I think you'll see other states create legal markets like that. California is looking at it. Florida is looking at it. Maine's looking at it. Hawaii is looking at it. I think you'll see a number of states have um, ballot initiatives similar to Oregon on the 2022 uh, midterm elections. So you could see new markets opening up, at least in concept, as, as soon as next November, uh, with implementation, implementation probably taking another year. In terms of FDA approvals, MDMA-assisted therapy is likely to be the first approved. And according to the guidance pro- provided by MAPS, uh, the group running the uh, clinical trials, um, they expect to be approved in marketing in 2023, so a year and a half or two years maybe. So it's pretty close. And then psilocybin from an FDA approval is probably looking at 2025, 2026. Uh, in Canada, I wouldn't be surprised, much like we saw with medical cannabis and recreational cannabis, if there's a uh, access program created similar to medical cannabis sometime in the next couple of years ahead of Health Canada approval. Um, but I'm, again, I'm just speculating on that. And then of course, I mean, I would not put you on record as saying it, but of course there are plenty of practitioners out there now who are doing it at their own risk, but because they feel so passionately about the benefits that they are administering, you know, psychedelic sessions with with psilocybin and or LSD or, or DMT or whatever, that all of these things are illegal, but they're seeing such benefits. It's like, you've got to know the right people and know the right questions to ask. And you can kind of find, I mean, I've, I've, I've identified a guide if I want to pull that thread. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's one of those things. It's like we all we all have to just do it in a stage whisper um, in order to help get the word out for people who really do need and want the help. But I think, you know, part, like the, the other side of it is not just the legality, but the stigma, which, I mean, it's such a hurdle. This is more of like a marketing challenge, marketing question for you. But like what... It's so crazy to me that we still have such a puritanical view of some of these types of practices where, you know, but we'll, we'll, you know, happily spend money on pharmaceuticals that we can't trace where they came from in the first place, let alone, you know, the number of side effects that come up that you then need another pharmaceutical for alcohol again in this category. So what do we do about like kind of flipping people's understanding or what are you doing to really address this like, ridiculous stigma that, you know, if you do this, that you're like a freak or you're going to, you're like a dropout and and all of these just completely, you know, antiquated notions of what this whole world is about. Yeah. Uh, I will go on record. There are lots of therapists and doctors doing underground work with these, um, 
we, these substances and, and good for them, you know, uh, and just look at Martin Luther King, uh, you know, it, 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 the time is always right to do what is right. Uh, it's our moral obligation to disobey an unjust law. And if you take a step back and I won't go too political on it, when you think about just how insane the war on drugs is, the fact that you can go out and get mushrooms, no problem. The fact that you can find cocaine or heroin, you know, probably within one or two phone calls is just if people got to just accept how much of an abject failure the war on drugs have caused and the war on drugs has been, and you think about the cost, the humanitarian cost, the economic cost, the political cost, it's just insane. Like it really is totally absurd that anyone still thinks this is a good idea because it's not. And, And you don't have to have a political belief in that. Just look at the evidence and the data. It speaks for itself. On the same token, when you deal with the stigma, I'm a big believer that stigma cannot exist in the face of objective evidence. And so as more and more evidence comes out about the safety and efficacy of psychedelic therapies, as more and more people come forward and talk about how psychedelic therapies has improved the quality of their lives, and we're talking you know, incredibly successful people who have been open about this, and I try to have them on our podcast, which is called Field Tripping, you know, it, it's going to change. It, it just has to. You hear people like Tim Ferriss, uh, who's, you know, I won't say he's the most normal guy, but he kind of fits a very nice picture of like the American successful male talking about how psychedelics have been so impactful to him. Tucker Max, Andrew Weil, Humble the Poets, um, you know, Michael Paul, the list goes on and on and on and on, and it's just going to grow and grow and grow and grow. And then eventually, you know, I don't think there's going to be any stigma left. And, and certainly the New York Times article on the front page saying the psychedelic revolution is here, psychiatry will never be the same or, or whatever it was. It goes a long way to make people sit up and, and pay attention saying like, oh, this is, this is real. And this is not what's What's nice in some ways about what's happening with psychedelics and the renaissance we're experiencing right now is that's not coming from an advocacy level. It's not coming from a grassroots level. It's not the hippies out there, you know, trying to free the weed. It is science. It is Johns Hopkins. It's New York University. It's Imperial College. These are credentialed ivory tower academics who have everything to lose uh, by sticking their neck out to advance this research. And they continue to do it because the research is so persuasive. So it makes it a much easier conversation. However, you said the S word, which is you have to believe in science in the first place. And that (laughs) is the one problem we have is that the whole list of examples you just gave really kind of sits squarely in, you know, the blue camp. I hate to say it and I hate to be so just like blunt, not blunt, but like it's just so oversimplified, which is why it's actually kind of nice to see like Rebecca Mercer, who is notorious, very loud, outspoken Republican, also as an investor in MAPS. That's that's the stigma crowd, right? That's the one who says, you know, and, and again, I'm making generalizations, but we can kind of surmise that you have to believe in science and we have a big problem with people who believe in science and don't in this country. That's very true. Um, but even that, like even Rick Perry, uh, the former governor of Texas, has come forward, you know, seeing it as a, as a treatment option for, for military veterans. Uh, even if you don't believe in science, um, I think, I still think this, the momentum here is too strong. Uh, I think people are recognizing that cannabis is now legal for recreational use. I think for a third of Americans and two thirds have access to medical cannabis programs. 
the sky has not fallen. Um, in many ways, those societies are probably better off. I, I think it's not such a huge leap uh, as it would have been five years ago before cannabis had become so pervasive in our society, I think in a very positive way. So so yes, there there is... It's definitely a credibility gap in science um, and some of it rightfully earned. You know, the opioid crisis is a good reason that people stop believing in, in the proper regulation of certain medicines. And, and someone needs to own that and realize that they, hey, they, they really screwed up on, on making this accessible. Unfortunately, it's probably led to an outright rejection of science as opposed to a critical analysis of how science and medicine is conducted. And it's a challenge. It's one of the big challenges. But that's one of the other things that's really nice about psychedelics is one of the, and we haven't talked about this yet, but when you look at antidepressants, conventional antidepressants like SSRIs, the side effects tend to be suicidality, uh, dullness, loss of libido, sexual dysfunction, all these really things that are unpleasant just to avert another unpleasant feeling like being depressed. With psychedelics, the side effects tend to be increased creativity, increased empathy, more regard for the planet, and, and importantly, especially these days, more openness to other people's viewpoints. And so again, it's one of those things where I think it becomes more self-perpetuating that the more people who become open to this, the more people who become aware to it, the more people who start working with psychedelic therapies, and the vast majority of whom are going to have very positive, productive, healthy experiences the more it's going to continue to manifest itself. And then I really do see it as a virtuous cycle uh, going forward. Amen. I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I just wanted to ask about ayahuasca. Is that in this camp? How do you think about that? Ayahuasca is... The way I think about ayahuasca is because it's often done in a traditional ceremonial context... I think of it less as a valid mental health treatment and more as a opening for people to tap tap into their spirituality. You know, I I think a big thing that comes from psychedelic therapies is not only that it helps people revisit past traumas and deal with their shit. I think it also helps people just tune into a frequency or a resonance that in modern Western objective science technology world, we've just lost touch with, right? And there was uh, a reporter uh, who came in and had an experience in one of our clinics and I was speaking to her afterwards. And she reported how is her first larger dose with psychedelics. She reported how she started finding the really profound in the mundane. You know, She started to appreciate that she had a body. Now, it sounds like a very high thing to do being like, holy shit, I have a body. This is amazing. (laughs) But if you think about it, when you're in that zone, when you're in that resonance, when you're so engrossed in something and find it so fascinating, those niggling thoughts of anxiety, depression, or everything that's happening that's scary outside of your brain, just get pushed out. Right, and you can focus on the things that are good in life, and and you just need to look at the evidence around what gratitude practices uh, can do for people. Right, you know, just taking a daily five, like the five minute journal, which is what Tim Ferriss talks about, uh, and it was started by actually friends of mine. Just taking five minutes a day to write down what you're grateful for can shift a person's life substantially, and there's a lot of evidence of it. And I think psychedelic therapies help people tap into that, and so. On ayahuasca, I think ayahuasca opens people up to kind of working in that sphere. But because it's not done in a in a more therapeutic context where there's more work and carry on uh, and integration into life, it tends to be a, a moment in time kind of experience. It's probably less relevant as a mental health treatment, but still a, a wonderful experience. Um, 
Not to mention that the active drug in ayahuasca, at least one of them, is DMT, uh, dimethyltryptamine. And there's a lot of evidence around dimethyltryptamine. You can't ingest it orally because your body breaks it down, but inhaled uh, DMT or 5-MeO-DMT, which is an iteration of it, uh, is extremely potent and extremely fast acting. And that can be done, I think, quite effectively in a therapeutic context because you know, you don't lie around on the floor barfing, um, you know, following ingestion, you go through the experience and you come out the other side. So a little bit more clinically useful for us. Yeah. I haven't done the ayahuasca for that reason uh, myself. I'm like, that eh, sounds interesting, but I'm not into puking. I'm not into <laughs> pooping my pants. Sorry. I mean, that's, you know, if it's one or the other, I'm going to choose something else entirely. Um, but DMT is like 20 minutes, right? Isn't it just like crazy, like fast and loud and then it's done? That's exactly right. It's like a rocket ship to space and then you're back. Um, uh, but it's, it, you know, people, it, it's supposed to be the most intense. It's called the spirit molecule or the God molecule because people, when they have a DMT experience, often report feeling connected to God or the universe on a very deep and personal level. So clinically, it'll be interesting. There's a lot of studies around DMT because it's so short. It becomes really interesting from an administration perspective because people can be in and out in an hour or two hours, or you can do three or four sessions in a few hours and, and see where it leads to. But because it's so intense, uh, we don't know. There, there seems to be something, there is evidence that the intensity of the mystical experience and the length of the mystical experience in a psychedelic uh, uh, trip has an impact on the therapeutic outcomes. So if it's like a 10 minute in and out, it's just not it, we just don't know if, if it's going to be effective therapeutically. Just so much. You are just a wealth of knowledge. Oh my I God. Know. It's so, so concise and so like <laughs> easily explained. All right. My last question is really just the, the, like the big picture question, which is like, I feel like this is kind of a chicken and egg moment that we're in. Like, which came first? This whole kind of this like uprising that's coming back that obviously has been, you know, in the works for a few years or. Is it that like these current times that we're living in have just left us with no other alternative that work? Like, it's just so fascinating to me that right when it feels like things in our lives as a culture are the most intense and the most unmanageable, here comes this like incredible opportunity to address it. I mean, I'm a big believer in reality creation. I believe things happen for a reason. That's my personal viewpoint. Um, and I also like being a believer in reality creation because it makes you take responsibility for everything that happens in your life, good or bad. And you can never be a victim if you're the author of your own fortune. But my, my belief is that uh, this is happening right now because I think on a deeper level, we need it. And it also just happens that all the research is happening right now. And we have a whole bunch of factors. I mean, mental health is going mainstream. You see apps like Common Headspace being valued at a billion dollars or more. Uh, cannabis has gone mainstream, which is shifting people's perspectives. There's become a healthy skepticism towards pharmaceuticals, uh, right or wrong. Uh, you know, the opioid crisis has created a situation where people are looking at more holistic treatments. Integrative medicine and preventative medicine are becoming uh, really essential and focused on where the future of healthcare is. That being reactive to people being sick, as opposed to being proactive and preventing from be be people being sick, is uh, a much more effective way to do it. Um, and so, all of these things are converging right now, uh, and it just so happens that it's the right time for it to be happening. So it's. Whether it's cause or effect, it doesn't really matter. The truth is, is it's here. So let's appreciate uh, what's happening and, and trying to make the most of it. Amen. 
Amen. I mean, I think we feel the same way with our own, you know, experience in in this this shroom boom that we definitely did not like jump into thinking this is going to be super mainstream right away. But here we are, and all of a sudden, it feels like the zeitgeist, and we're happy to be a part of it. Well, yeah. it's, I mean, even with COVID, right? It's like, wow, yeah. what are the chances that you know all, this thing happened, this pandemic, and everyone is struggling? Obviously, immune support was what was the focus, and all of a sudden, there's a shroom boom and functional mushrooms are like, they're first and foremost immune modulators. You know, it's just kind of this, like, how did that happen? I don't know. It kind of blows my mind. We were fortunate. Uh, we managed to find some morel mushrooms the other day. So we had uh, some quite tasty morels last night. Those are Yum, nice. fancy. Yeah, exactly. We'll send you some delicious treats for your, for your collection. Excellent. <laughs> or we could do a swap. Why don't we do a swap? Hey. <laughs> Oh, I kid, I kid. Um, this is so great. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I feel like this is such valuable information. And, you know, I'm going to mark on my calendar now. What did you say? 2023, 24? 2023, <laughs> you'll probably see MDMA assisted therapy be uh, available. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ronan. Thank you so much, Ronan. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. It's really nice to meet you both. And, and please, Zoe, tell me how the experience goes or your first call, or if you need anything else going through the process, um, let me know and I'm happy to try and facilitate. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm awesome. going to book my shit too. All right. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Ronan. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.